welcome to Delivering Miracles, a podcast to teach women like you tips and strategies on how you can have a safer pregnancy so you can bring home a healthy baby. I'm your host and your high-risk pregnancy expert, Farijat Deshpande. I can't wait to chat with you. I was doing a presentation at a clinic not too long ago, and it was with a bunch of different doctors who were all part of a group practice. And I was telling them about my services so they know that support for women who have high-risk pregnancies and who are pregnant after fertility treatment is available. And so I opened it up to questions afterwards. There was maybe like, I want to say maybe six, seven, eight doctors, something like that, all in one room. And so I opened it up to questions for the doctors, uh, thinking that I would get questions about my services, um, which I did a couple of them. But one of the doctors spoke up and he said he was a little bit, gosh, I can't remember. I don't know how old he was, not too old, maybe 40s, maybe late 40s or so. Um, So he's had experience. He's seen a lot of patients, but he's still young enough, I think, that he was able to connect with the patient experience. And he said, I wish my patients would ask me more questions. How do I encourage that? And I just stood there for a second. I didn't say anything because I wanted to go and hug the guy because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, how often do you hear that from a doctor? More often than not, we feel like we're pushed out the door, discouraged from asking any questions to our doctors. But this one, this doctor right here was going, tell me more, tell me how to get them to talk to me more. And I loved it. I loved it. You know, my dad recently told me that he went to see his physician for a checkup And there wasn't a whole lot going on, but, you know, he needed to go see the doctor, just kind of check in and see how things are going. And so he didn't expect the appointment to be too long, but he didn't expect it to be literally two and a half minutes is what he said. And so the doctor comes in, he talks to my dad for a little, uh, checks him out a little bit for like two minutes and then he leaves. And my dad was like, wait, 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 I have questions as the doctor's leaving the, the room. And he literally chases him down the hallway going, excuse me, excuse me, I have questions. And that is what it took for his doctor to come back into the room and actually talk to him. Like that's the that's the more common experience that I think a lot of people have, which is really unfortunate because I know that's not how doctors want to run the business either. They're not in the, this field to just kind of check in. Hey, OK, you're fine. See you later. Uh, I know they want to do more, but they can't. And then patients obviously want more from their doctors, too. So when this doctor, you know, specifically asked how to encourage more questions, I got super excited, right? And it got me thinking about all the reasons why we don't ask questions to our doctors. You know, maybe it's you can't remember them in the moment. Like you've got them all. You even have them written down, but then you just forget or you just don't think they're important all of a sudden or you don't want to look like an idiot in front of your doctor so you don't say anything or you don't want to embarrass yourself or embarrass your doctor by asking something really sensitive so you don't do it and you'd rather ask Google or your neighbor instead of your physician. Um, Maybe you think that your doctor has all the details covered when it comes to your health and so you don't need to ask anything or you feel like you should understand what your doctor's saying even though you're You have absolutely no clue what they're talking about or you don't know what to ask, right? There's so many reasons why we don't ask questions to our doctors. But the truth is 
you have to ask questions. You have to understand what's going on with your health because it's your body and you do know it better than anyone else and you've got to be in charge of your health care. That's why I'm so glad to have my friend and colleague Jay Palumbo on today to talk about what questions fertility patients ask her as a fertility advocate because if they have them on their mind, I'm sure you've thought about this once or twice too. And I hope that my conversation here with Jay is going to con- really inspire you and motivate you to feel comfortable and confident to speak up at your next appointment too, because you deserve it and you need to do it. Jennifer J. Palumbo is a freelance writer, a public speaker, an infertility and women's rights advocate, a former stand-up comic, author of the blog, The Two Week Wait, and proud IVF mom. You can follow her on Twitter at JenPal, that's J-E-N-N-P-A-L, which is non-uterus related, or The Two Week Wait, which is the, the number two week wait, which features fertility related fun. Welcome, Jay. I'm so, so excited to have you here on this episode. Thank you. It's a, it's a, a topic that I'm I actually am quite passionate about and and I can tell you are as well. Um, and it's, it is fascinating because as I was listening to you talk, I actually think I get more questions than some doctors do. <laughs> I believe it. Absolutely. Well, it I don't, I, I mean, one of the things I've been told just to quickly weigh in is some people are scared to ask their doctor because, and this makes no sense to me, but they're worried about some retaliation. Like the doctor will think yeah. they're difficult and it'll affect their treatment. And that I'm like, why in the holy heck would they do that? Unless you're going to like a mob Italian reproductive <laughs> In which case you've got bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, that's a bigger, but why they would retaliate. But I've heard that, I mean, I, I so many times that they're like, well, I don't want to piss off my doctor. Right. But um, I, I don't know what the logic is because the doctor, I'm sure, wants to be successful. But that is one reason that I've, been told but that's but, such yeah. a great point and i think it, it really speaks to the way that we conceptualize the medical industry in our life right now is we think of it as completely different than any other professional that we hire to help us right like would we would we feel bad about questioning our gardener if they're not you know doing the right job in our yard or questioning right. our lawyer if they weren't looking at our contracts properly of course not the doctor is the same thing you're hiring them for professional advice so you've got to ask the questions, and they're not going to be mad at you. That that asking a question is somehow um, an accusation. Yes. If you're just saying, like, for example, with endometriosis, because I'd, I'd written something recently about it, and I put in a list of questions that you can ask, and one of them is, you know, how can we be certain I have endometriosis? That's a really fair question. Totally. Sometimes it can be very difficult to diagnose or... If you do have endometriosis, they may misdiagnose it for, um, I don't know, uh, appendicitis, for example. Yep. So the thought that you're just asking a question, you genuinely are asking a question, but sometimes they're like, well, if I say, how do they know? They may think I'm accusing them of not knowing what they're doing. Like it has to be, I'm just asking a question because I do not know the answer. Why? It has to be that it's not accusatory or a negative thing to ask a question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so glad that you're here so we can talk about this. And I think for our listeners, when they hear the questions that you've heard, I think it's going to help them go, oh, gosh, okay, 
there are other women that are asking this too. Okay, it is safe to ask this. So I love that you're here and we can talk about this. Um, you, before we jump into that though, you have an incredible story about your journey to building your family and the and how you got to doing the work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your journey has been up until this point? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, although I think your story is more incredible to be fair, but. <laughs> oh, they're, they're both just in amazing, amazing stories. Yes, they're, they're, they're each like snowflakes, very individual. Right? And, and we really know. are special snowflakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically the overall thing is, and, and this to me, the, the biggest thing with me that I find interesting is, because I know there's some debate about this. For me, I actually think the IVF process was diagnostic because I had been trying to conceive and trying to conceive and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. And I had the appropriate blood work. You know, my FSH and my AMH were totally normal. I had sonograms and HSGs and um, everything seemed fine. I did develop a, a uterine polyp after my first IVF, which uh, I know, as you know, I named Jackson Polyp because it's artistic. <laughs> and other than that, though, I just was completely an unexplained um, infertile. So when I started doing the IVF process, that's when we started to see what may be going on. And that was I would produce all these eggs. They would retrieve, you know, anywhere from eight to 13 eggs, but I would only ever have you know, like two, one embryos. I just would not produce embryos. And then lucky me, my eggs had very high standards in that it would only produce eight cell embryos or nothing. (laughs) Some people would maybe produce like four cells, six cell. For me, it was only eight cells or absolutely nothing. That's it. So after going through three rounds of IVF, literally having no more money, truly, our, our last IVF, drained all of our our um, savings account. We had no more insurance coverage. And I had the most eggs retrieved that I had ever had, but only had one embryo. And I think a little bit of luck and a little bit of statistics, because um, they do say, on average, it typically takes someone three IVFs to have one live birth. That one embryo is now my five-and-a-half-year-old son, Michael. So after I had Michael, I went back to my reproductive endocrinologist, and I'm like, should I even bother trying to ever have any other kids? Should I do treatment? And I actually give a lot of respect to my RE who was honest with me, not brutal, but just honest and said, you're not a good responder. You're just not. She's like, if you did another cycle, I would say commit to doing one more. And then that would be it because I don't want you to go down another path of, of going through cycle after cycle after cycle. That's really amazing that she said that to you and really was very honest with you about that. Yeah, I really respect that. Some people I've shared that story with, they're like, oh, my God. But I'm like, no, I she wasn't mean about it. There's there's a way to be tactful and honest. Um, It wasn't mean or brutal. I asked talking about asking questions. I asked her an honest question. Do you think, you know, I should even bother? Um, And my husband and I had a talk and we decided that it's better to spend money on the child we have as opposed to spending it on trying to have a child we may never have. And that's a really hard decision to come to. It was, it really was particularly, you know, I'm, I'm Italian Roman Catholic raised. Um, and so, you know, it's all about brief, brief, you know, be fruitful and multiply and have tons of kids. And be, 
So to kind of resign ourselves to one, it was a process, but I, I do feel like we got to a place where we were like, where we, where we made peace with it. And no joke, no exaggeration. My husband will back me up. We, we gave away all of our baby stuff. And literally about two, three weeks later, I think it was actually three weeks, I found out that I conceived totally on my own um, just a couple of weeks before I turned 41. Um, and the thing that we knew from my IVF process is I only produce great embryos. So even though I don't produce a lot, I at least produce quality ones. So I went back to my RE and she's like, well, we know it had to have been a good embryo. <laughs> around but the thing that I always want to stress so because now I have two sons that was truly a Hail Mary long shot out of nowhere pass because age is definitely a factor and I truly had a diagnosed infertility issue of of poor egg quality which which was definitely discovered through the IVF process but I'm I'm incredibly grateful. I really never thought I would have two, let alone one. Um, but I, it's it's sort of a weird place to be in uh, because, you know, you're an infertile who got pregnant on their own. <laughs> right. So, so I'm always trying to walk that line, but I'm still so passionate about this. And um, that's why I always try to make sure people know that no matter what your story is, it, it's funny too, because this morning I was writing about secondary infertility so even if you got pregnant yeah. easily on your first time that doesn't mean you don't uh have any other issues maybe conceiving your second or third so i think ultimately asking questions really is for everyone both the fertile the not so fertile because we still to me there's still so many unknowns about your fertility um so i'm all about asking questions no matter where you are on your journey you could be single and not thinking of having kids, but you may actually have an issue, but until you actually are proactive and talk to your OBGYN and say, hey, maybe I should get my FSH and AMH checked, um, you won't know. So I'm all for questions. Okay, so for, the, for our listeners here who don't know what that means, can you tell us what FSH and AMH is? And let's start there. Oh, yes. Great. And it's I always joke that if you stopped a woman on the street, and asked, do you know what an FSH and AMH is? They'll think it's an acronym on Twitter. Uh, So I'm all about trying to educate people because it's so important. Yes. Um, And and women don't even know about it. So uh, FSH is uh, the acronym for a follicular stimulating hormone or follicle stimulating hormone, excuse me. And it basically is how many follicles, which means how many eggs you have, um, because every month you produce a follicle an egg is in that follicle, and when you ovulate, the egg is released from the follicle, and either it fertilizes or does not fertilize. Um, and we'll on- add here, too, that you're born with the maximum number of eggs. It's not like you produce more eggs as you get older. Yes. And also, it's funny. I, I was talking to someone. It's funny that you mentioned that. I was talking to someone who's using her sister's eggs because she has her own egg quality issue, and her mom said, oh, God, I hope you're not taking all of your sister's eggs. <laughs> so I thought that was so funny and adorable. It's important to note that if you do do egg freezing or IVF or anything like that, it's not like they take all your eggs. It's it's right. You may produce more of that cycle, but it's it's not like they're completely harvesting everything. Um, and then an AMH is an anti-malarian hormone, which, and again, this is my non-medical way of describing it, 
is the overall quality of your eggs. So your FSH and your AMH um, looks at how many eggs you have and the quality. And it's a blood test you can do really actually with your OBGYN, with your primary care physician, with the reproductive endocrinologist. The thing is with FSH, you can only do it on day three of your cycle. So day one is when you, the first day of you get your period. And then day three, you would get blood work. You can call whomever that, you know, which doctor you're seeing and saying, Hey, you know, I got my period. They'll say, okay, great. Come in in three days and uh, find out your FSH. Your AMH, you can test at any point of your cycle. But these two things, while it doesn't necessarily provide the complete picture, it does provide insight into your overall fertility health. Um, so I, I think it's amazing too, because insurance covers it. It's not expensive. To me, it should be a regular part of your annual um, checkup like a pap smear is. Totally agree with that. I totally agree. Because imagine if we can get this information when we're in our 20s, before, way before you know we want to have children, way before we even think about children, just to get a baseline and know, okay, what are we dealing with here? If you right. know that sooner, you can make different decisions about your fertility and your future family journey whenever you're ready for it. Yeah. And there's a story I always share about exactly this and that was, um, I'd spoken to a woman, so she was, say, roughly in her mid to late 30s, and she decided to look into freezing her eggs, and they found out she was going into menopause early. So they asked her, do you happen to have any sisters? She's like, well, actually, yes, I do have a younger sister who's 28. And they said, I would have her check into her fertility health. Right. And it turned out that the younger sister was at the beginning of kind of, going into menopause, but, but sort of earlier stages in the game. So because of her older sister, her younger sister was able to look into egg freezing proactively um, and That's was awesome. kind of in a, a place where she was better able to freeze her eggs, meaning that there were kind of more eggs to, to freeze. Um, so right. you just don't know until you know. So it's better to ask yeah. and say, hey, can I look into getting this blood work? And, and I should note, it is amazing to me that doctors don't bring this up more with their female patients. It's usually yeah. talking about asking the female patient saying, hey, do you mind if we do this? Yeah, absolutely. Taking charge of that, because look at how many options you have left. If you were to do this earlier, like the, the story that you gave of the two sisters just now, is right. now she has options. Her doors are still open. She may not need those eggs down the road when she's ready to have children, but she's right. got them, which is amazing. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and that's the thing people always, um, they're kind of hesitation about egg freezing because I know egg freezing isn't necessarily loved and adored right. by everyone. But um, they feel like, well, what if it doesn't work out or we don't know the success rates because right now there are definitely more eggs frozen than there are live births from the frozen eggs. But speaking as someone who did go through infertility issues, I would rather have an option than no option to your point. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And, and I know that some of our listeners can hear this and they might be thinking, well, but that's not going to happen to me. And I sure yeah. hope that it doesn't. You know, I hope that this doesn't become an issue for you. You don't know what this is like. But in case you do, it's an option that and a door that's still left open for you so that you've got something to fall back on. And you don't have to rely on it if you don't need it, but you've got it if you do. Right. Right. 
exactly. And and I I think it's it's difficult because you don't ever want to use scare tactics. So I, right. I always try to joke that I'm like the ghost of infertility future <laughs> <laughs> because I'm I'm you may be totally fine, but wouldn't it be better to not be in the situation like I was because the fact remains that was several years of my life, thousands and thousands of dollars, a lot of heartache, a tremendous yeah. strain on my marriage. Um, and if that one embryo didn't take, I mean, I, I couldn't have done a fourth cycle. I, I mean, I just couldn't have. Um, even when I went back to my doctor to say, should I bother? It's not like we had the money or the coverage. Um, if I had eggs from my younger self, um, I, I don't know that that to have that option would have been comforting because when you do freeze your eggs, it stays the age you were when you froze them. So right. I, I do always, my big thing lately is trying to reach more of the fertile public um, because there's still a piece of education missing. You know, I think Absolutely. fifth grade, they teach you how not to get pregnant, but they don't actually teach you how to get pregnant. And so, as you said earlier, I, I've gotten the, most fascinating questions ranging from completely logical you know like there's still so many people that don't realize you have to have sex when you're ovulating to conceive um they just don't get it uh, i had a couple a really lovely smart couple say we are having sex regularly every time she gets her period and we're just not conceiving and i'm like wait when she has her period for some reason they thought you conceive when she's getting her period, I, I, I that just floored me. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. I don't know what to say. I, I'm really surprised to hear that. But I guess that makes sense. If nobody tells you, why would you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think um, it just, it, it's amazing that, like I said, there are just so many intelligent people that may not get the actual logistics of everything. Um, sure. Even how many people do you know? knows what implantation is right i mean i I, my i had a former sister-in-law bless her heart she was like oh i knew the night i conceived no you didn't (laughs) (laughs) love you mean it you didn't that's not how it happens you don't get pregnant instantly and then you know you know it just doesn't you know the the sperm has to travel it has to meet up with the egg then it has to fertilize then if an embryo is formed, it has to then travel back down to the uterus. Like it takes a couple of days. You did not, you know, know that you can see. I'm sorry. It was a great night and a great time. And I appreciate that. You do not. It just didn't happen that way. So that I understand. Um, I, I get the difference that people don't always know the difference between, say, transferring an embryo or implantation. Sure. Um, those those are the more logical questions I've been asked. Um, but then. Yeah, I've definitely been asked some things that I didn't even fathom. Right, right. And you're really great about sharing some of these. So I remember reading as you share them going, huh, I never I never thought about that. So I'd love for you to kind of share what are some of your um, what's the most common question that you receive as a fertility advocate? Oh, God, the most common question. Well, I think everyone wants to know how do you get pregnant as quickly as possible quickly as possible yeah Yeah, i mean i think that's the one i think thing i've been asked the most the thing that amazes me is i'll get like a crazy crazy question and i'm like wow that's one for the books and then i'll end up getting it like two or three more times (laughs) (laughs) like i'll share with you one and this is a little i feel a little funny actually even mentioning this but 
I have been asked three different times about a husband being in jail and how they can smuggle out the husband's sperm <laughs> to do insemination. You know, and I've heard about hiding a file in a cake to break out of prison, but I don't know if you, can, you know, put a sperm sample in any type of pastry. <laughs> Not any that I would want to know about. No, that's or that for I, sure. that I would want to eat to smuggle out. But yeah. I, I, I got that question once, and I'm like, well, that's crazy. And then I ended up getting it two more times. And so, yeah. that's I mean, hilarious. I know. It was so, I'm like, Jesus. And then one other thing I've been asked multiple times that still surprises me is, you know, something along the lines of, you know, I'm having issues with my eggs. Can I use my husband's eggs? And I'm, <laughs> I'm being dead honest. I That has floored me. Because... Okay, so let's kind of educate our listeners here for a second. So <laughs> women have eggs and men have sperm. Right. And men do not have eggs. Right. And women do not have sperm. Right. Now, I don't know in the future, I mean, technology is always evolving. There may be genetic components that can be taken. I mean, it's entirely possible. But as you said, and you couldn't have put it any better, men just don't have eggs. They have sperm. That's that's the end of it. And yeah. again, I, I was surprised when I got asked that the first time. Um, but then when I, I kept getting that question, that was that was amazing to me. I have to say, though... That's not too far off than something that I've said to my husband in the middle of an IVF cycle when I'm just like so over the injections and I, you know, my belly was all bruised. I remember one night I just looked at him right as I was about to inject myself again and I'm like, can you just grow some damn ovaries so you can do this next time? (laughs) I'm so done. I know. I know. Women definitely have more of the physical brunt usually. It's hard. Yeah. But there was actually one question that I always remember that's one of my favorites that I, I, I'd like to share because yeah, please. I actually think on the surface it was like, whoa, but then it actually I think is, is pretty insightful as to how people aren't exactly always aware of how things work. So some woman had, had asked me, this is years ago, can a doctor just put one sperm in me because I don't want to have twins? Now there's a lot there. Oh. And it, it, it really was... It's an odd question, but I actually kind of could see how how that one, that actually made more sense to me than some of the other It does, actually. It does, because if we back up for a second, when you do an intrauterine insemination, which is when the doctor basically puts sperm into your uterus to kind of help along the process, they don't do just one. They actually take a whole sample and they kind of put a bunch of it in there and then may the best man win, basically, right? Right. Right. But so this is and but then because of that, you are at risk of developing a, a multiple pregnancy. You're a, at risk of, of having more than one embryo fertilize um, or more than one egg fertilize and having a, a pregnancy with twins, triplets, something like that. Right. And it's usually how many eggs you're producing or if an egg splits more than how many sperm they put in you. And, and also right. something I explained to her, which she didn't know, um, she was she happened to be a lesbian and so i was trying to explain her because she's like when i was explaining to her the whole process she's like well yeah but i don't want it to be like sex with a man and i'm like well it's not but even fertile straight people it's the same amount of sperm like 
Mm-hmm. It just is, no matter what, you know, whether you're straight or gay or whether you do insemination or have sex, it's it's always the same amount of sperm. And that always that isn't necessarily an indicator of whether or not you're going to have twins. But like I said, there was like a couple of things there that I'm like, well, that kind of sort of makes sense. They don't necessarily know what causes twins. On that note, I have been asked more times than I can even remember, how do I have twins? Yes, um, I'm that, sure, especially once Beyonce and Amal Clooney and everybody's having twins all over the place. How yes. do I do that? Yeah, I, and well, I always think of The Shining with all due respect. To <laughs> That's, but again, I was a, you know, I, I was a theater major. So, but that even I've been asked by fertile people and that, yeah. I mean, I always answer them you know, you can't guarantee that you'll have twins. Even with IVF, you can't guarantee that you have right. twins. You don't know how many embryos you're going to produce. You, and even if you produced tons, not every doctor transfers more than one. Some really support single embryo transfer. And then even if they transferred two or three, they may not all implant. But right. the thing that kind of bothers me about that, and you can speak to that better than anyone, is they don't realize the complications that a twin pregnancy can cause both for the mother and for the babies. Yes, exactly. They really have no concept. And uh, uh, someone who I I knew years ago who had twins that she delivered early due to preeclampsia and her sons were in the NICU for quite some time, she said anyone who asks about twins, you should take them to any NICU unit anywhere in the country and they would probably think twice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the tricky part is we hear so many stories of twin pregnancies that go great. You, right. hear, you Everybody knows somebody who's delivered twins at term or 36 weeks and babies are fine, mom's fine, everyone's fine, 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 fine. But more often than not, there are so many complications that happen for mom, that happen for babies. And I totally agree with this friend of yours that you don't want preemies. You don't want a baby in the NICU because it is the worst feeling in the world to watch your child struggle and suffer and just try to survive. It's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. I I mean, you know, Michael was only in the NICU for nine days. I have nothing much to complain about. Um, but he was in the NICU with a lot of twins. And what what was interesting to me was Michael was born at 37 weeks. I'd had some complications with my liver. Figure that. I don't even drink. And, of course, when I get pregnant, something happens with my liver. <laughs> um, but the thing that they kept saying about Michael, he was, um, I believe, seven pounds or maybe six pounds, nine ounces. He was the biggest baby in the NICU. Mm-hmm. They, they were like, oh, my God, we've never had a baby this big. They don't know what to do with such big babies. Exactly. <laughs> because everyone else in the NICU were twins that were born early. It was yeah. it was really humbling. Um, yeah. and, and especially you. I, I cannot I cannot imagine how you went through that. And um, it's so great that you're also advocating not only just about asking questions about how to get pregnant, but even how to get through a pregnancy that is so difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And it really goes back to you as the patient, you know, being in charge of your health, whether it's to get pregnant, stay pregnant, whether pregnancy is even off the table for you, it doesn't matter. It's your body, it's your health. And so you've got to be the leader of your prenatal team or your medical team. You have to, because you're the one that's living in your body and you're the one that's going to have to live with whatever decisions you make. So you might as well know everything so you can make the best decisions possible for you and your partner, your family, whatever your goals are for your life. 
And I think, you know, going back to your example with the room full of doctors, it sounds like a beginning of a joke, like a room full of doctors walked in. <laughs> but I think it's, it's two things. One, that doctor, I think really, and every doctor, ideally, including your father's, needs to say, do you have any questions? No, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you all ask me because I'm willing to bet my small amount of money that they all do have questions. I mean, I agree exactly. with you. Sometimes you forget it. Um, so I always encourage having a list. But sometimes it genuinely is that they're just scared to ask. So I think if you have a doctor being like, no, really ask. But then yeah. I do think the second part of that is if you are really taking an active part in your medical condition, your treatment, anything that, that you're seeing a doctor for, you are empowered enough to be like, hey, um, do you think I should do pregenetic screening? Have you heard about estrogen priming? You are now working collaboratively with your doctor, whether he yeah. wants to or not, or whether she wants to or not. I think if you want to be a truly empowered patient, you do need to educate yourself, not necessarily by Googling things, but maybe looking at trusted sources, talking to other people who have gone through it and really not being afraid to be like, well, have we thought about this for me? Assisted hatching. Um, can you tell me more about mosaic embryos? I know I'm throwing out a lot, but the more, you know, the more you can take an active part in your treatment. And I do think within fertility in particular, and I guess really any medical illness, so much of it, you really feel is out of control. You can't yeah. control if you're going to get pregnant but you can control the process and your protocol. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is by educating yourself and asking your doctor those questions. Absolutely. And you know what happens when you do that is your doctor takes you more seriously. Okay. I have personal experience of that, right? That your doctor is no longer waving you off as this super anxious person that's calling me all the time, that's always worried, okay, okay, I'll take, you know, come in and I'll see you, but everything's fine. Right. They actually sit and they listen to you because you know your body so well, you've done your homework, that now you're speaking to them as equals, which you always should be because your medical team is comprised of two experts. One is your doctor and one is you. Right. Oh, I love that. And when you can do that... Now, all of a sudden, your doctor is really listening, really taking the time. And so when you do have a concern, when you do have something that's worrying you, you've got a symptom that you don't like and you want to take get it checked out, they're not waving you off anymore. They're really taking you seriously. And I, I really, truly have personal experience with that. And it is really so comforting to know that you're at a point in your relationship with your doctor that you don't have to worry about whether they're going to take you seriously or not. You've already gone past that and it's done. And now it's okay, let's just deal with what we're, what's being presented at the moment. And I think it's always important too, that if you feel like you're the doctor that you're with isn't listening or isn't working collaboratively with you or isn't taking you seriously in, in any capacity, you, you always can see another doctor. That's yes. That's come up a lot. Yes. A lot of people are like, oh my God, I don't want to have to, you know, start from the beginning with someone else. I don't want to get all my medical records. Um, it's just too big of a deal, too expensive. It's your health. You should feel listened to and um, enthusiastic about who you're being treated by. And if you don't, then there's really, it's not like you married your doctor. Like you, you owe nothing to this doctor. <laughs> I can't, right. I, I always tell people that it's like, you're not cheating yeah. on this doctor. Like you yes. are advocating on your behalf and, Part of that is making sure you're getting uh, treatment by someone you feel really good about and, and comfortable yes. with. 
you've got to be super comfortable with them. Absolutely. And, you know, surprisingly to, for a lot of patients, they don't realize that a lot of doctors really recommend that. They like it when you go get a second opinion. They like it when you take charge of your care. And if your doctor doesn't like that, then that's your sign. You've got to find somebody else because it's just not worth it to stick with somebody that you don't have a good feeling with or with somebody who feels like they know everything and you know nothing. I mean, that's not the way it works. So yeah. that is your sign to find somebody else. Absolutely. Um, Jay, what do you wish more women asked about when it comes to their fertility? Oh, wow. You know, I've never been asked that. What do I wish more women asked? Because I'd always, I mean, I'm always for what do I, my goal is to make sure people are more educated on their fertility health in general and more proactive. But what do I wish they asked their doctors more? That's a really good question. <laughs> Holy crap. I need like Jeopardy music right now. Well, I mean, it's funny. I, I think the infertile in me, the first question I always want to ask is like, do you think I'm actually going to get pregnant? But I don't know if that question is necessarily helpful. I mean, there's always a question of, is there anything um, I could be doing to be helping the process. But do you know what I actually think is probably the best question is probably because you're going to ask all of the questions that relate to your fertility and, and achieving a pregnancy and your health. I mean, that's just a given. But I think the one question that would probably be a smart thing to add to your list is what's the best way to communicate with you? Meaning, oh, that's a good one. do I email? Do I call? Like, do you prefer I get to the point? Do you want to hear my whole history? Like, how do you communicate best? Because if you and I are going to work together on getting me pregnant and having a, a the safest, healthiest pregnancy, you know, possible, how do we best work together? I think, too, it's not only a good question because it'll educate you on how to best communicate with your physician, but it's also a good question because I think your doctor, it, it's like a subtle way of being like, hey, listen, buddy, you and I are working together on this. So, you know, it's either teamwork or that's it. Um, right. So I, well, that's what I was just going to say. For those of you that are listening, if you hear how Jace kind of framed that question, there's so much power behind that question. There's so much of this understanding and expressing to your doctor, hey, I'm here and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to be involved how do you want me to communicate that? And you create this environment of teamwork, which is so amazing and so important. I love this question. Yeah, it's and it's a it's definitely a heads up to be like, I'm going to be communicating with you, so you're going to have to tell me the best way to do it. So right, it's like it's like firing a warning shot. But I, I do think <laughs> if it sets you guys up for like, there was one doctor who actually um, that I had been treated by, who was very supportive of me emailing him now there are other doctors who are like oh my god don't ever email me yeah um, right so i do think it's a valid question if i email my doctor and, and he's like oh great i'll email her right back then good to know um if another doctor's like you know this nurse is my go-to nurse you can call her anytime i, I do think it's actually a genuinely it, it 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 basically is a couple of birds with one stone um so it can be helpful to you in in many ways Yep, absolutely. Um, another question I had for you is, you know, you have an incredible sense of humor. I actually just yeah. love hearing you talk. I mean, you could just, I'd be there listening to you all day long. <laughs> you are hilarious. You're so funny. But I want to know your thoughts on kind of the role of humor when you're facing infertility. Because infertility is 
dark. Some days are dark, 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 and yeah. you feel awful. And I know when I was going through it, we developed a very dark sense of humor. But what are your thoughts about how humor plays into this? And should we be finding some humor in the midst of the chaos and the craziness? It's it's so complicated. And I do walk a very fine line. And I appreciate you saying that that you appreciate you appreciate my humor, because I know I have inadvertently uh, ticked some people off or offended some people. Now, to be clear, if anyone hangs out with me or knows me very well, I, I, I will. I'm telling you, I, it's impossible to overstate. If you know me, you know, I never mean to hurt anyone's feelings. I really never intend to do that. Even when I did stand up comedy, I was asked to actually do a Friars Roast, you know, the infamous Friars Roast. And I didn't do it because I, I don't make fun of people. I just, I never, that's not my humor. I didn't even pick on anyone in the audience. It's just not me. Um, so I never intend to hurt people and I never make jokes about anything truly heartbreaking or devastating. Um, you know, I, I mean, I could never do that. But I don't know how people don't have a sense of humor about it. It's gotten me through some incredibly bad times. Um, and, and certainly my husband, who, who's also a, a comic as well, when we were going through treatment, you know, it just, it kept us sane. And I think it does kind of diminish the power of infertility sometimes or, or any medical diagnosis. You know, years ago, I volunteered at Gilda's Club which is, you know, in honor of Gilda Radner, who was a comedic actress and, and was famous particularly for being on Saturday Night Live. She was the original cast member. A lot of people don't know who she is anymore, which shocks me. And she was all about taking a sense of humor and dealing with cancer, which is also pretty damn, you know, damn serious. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I have trying to conceive proverbs and I have infertility greeting cards. And <laughs> it, any sense of levity helped me tremendously. It's not a defense mechanism and it's not meant at all to be hurtful. It truly is a coping mechanism. And, you know, I, I have so many infertility jokes <laughs> and, you know, I always talk about uterus. It's the word us is in there. So we're all in the womb together. <laughs> and again, I talked about my polyp, Jackson Polyp. I created his own Twitter timeline. When something became funny, it became bearable to me. And yeah. I know that I've been, I've definitely been contacted by a few people who are like, I don't know how you can make light of this. And they, they definitely are offended by the humor. Um, but the overwhelming majority truly, truly, truly responds to it and resonates to it. Um, you know, how do you take your eggs fertilized and implanted? If you can get a quote, <laughs> <laughs> that you can use in life that makes it, you know, humorous. I think that helps, but it's just me. I, it's how I do with absolutely every possible situation and it's saved my life. I think humor is the biggest natural form of Prozac um, that you can yeah. possibly have. Absolutely. Um, I, I totally agree I, with I you all the time, but, but it, like I said, it, I, I think humor is, is a slight key to sanity. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It, for us too, it was really the only thing I think that kept us sane through 
infertility, through loss, through the high-risk pregnancy, through the NICU. I mean, it was, we had to find something to laugh about. And like you're saying, it's not to diminish what you're going through. It's not to hide behind it or as a defense mechanism, but really just to help you cope and just give you that release that, okay, I'm just going to laugh about this right now. And I, I will say, though, not everybody understands it. So if you yeah. have friends who have not gone through any of this stuff and they hear you making jokes, this has happened to us several times, about making jokes about, you know, ventilators and making jokes about injecting yourself in your belly or in your butt or wherever you are. They yeah. don't always understand, and that's okay. You know, so a lot of times we just, my husband and I kept the jokes to ourselves and we cracked each other up, but we needed it. Yeah. We needed it because we just, it was too hard. It was too heavy. It was too dark. And well, even I had planned something. I don't know if you remember this. I planned something a couple of years ago called the no baby shower. Yes, and, I remember. And some people were definitely offended by that, which I completely get. The, the, the whole thing behind it was when you're trying to conceive, I swear to God, it seems like when you're trying to conceive, everyone is throwing a baby shower and you're invited to each, each one. <laughs> and there was a period I had just finished my first IVF and it was horribly unsuccessful. And um, when I came back from work, literally when I came back from work after this IVF, there were like three pregnant women at work and my boss at the time, this is when I was working in corporate America, um, he asked me to plan a baby shower for them. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And I was so bitter because I was like, why do the pregnant fertile women get the baby showers? Like the ones who aren't getting pregnant need the baby showers. They need to be worshipped and adored. And so my, again, coming from humor, my joke was I'm going to plan a no baby shower where we have like soft cheeses, sushi and alcohol, like everything <laughs> that you can have when you're pregnant. The goodie bags are going to be filled with ovulation prediction kits, band-aids, um, <laughs> you know, anything that you need to cycle. And then the theme would be either, you know, Barbie or Minnie Mouse because they don't have any children. Right. And that's, it, it came from humor. It came from why can't we have a day that celebrates us where we get goodie bags and where we get presents and where we get oohs and ahs. And it was a painful moment to be planning a baby shower for three people at work. And again, of course, everyone at work was like, oh, they must be, there must be something in the water. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm drinking at the infertility vending machine because <laughs> I am not getting pregnant. So it did come from a painful thing. And I turned yeah. it into this humorous no baby shower. Now, again, people were offended. Not everyone found the humor in it. But I'm telling you, everyone who was there, and we had a tremendous turnout. Um, and I made sure no one was charged. It was a free event. I used all of my money um, to pay for it. Um, everyone loved it. We had a great time. People exchanged numbers. People became cycle buddies. They had never met before. But by the end of the event, kind of bringing their sense of humor and honesty, um, it was a very positive, it was a positive day. And I, I mean, people still keep in touch from it. So that's again, awesome. that's a good example of trying to take something painful, add some humor to it and create some positivity. But I totally respect why people would want to, you know, strangle me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you hit home is that it, it's a very personal journey. And so whatever it is that brings that levity to you, do that. If it's humor, great. If it's something else, 
do that too but do something and whatever it is let it be meaning to you meaningful to you and let it bring that sense of lightness during this dark time right yeah i mean it's true anything that brings you any sense of sanity i'm i support absolutely so kind of bringing it back to how we all started this right is we're talking about taking charge of your health and really the best way to to do that is to do your homework and then to ask questions you have to understand what's going on with your health because it's your body and you know it better than anybody in the entire world. So Jay, I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours, but since we do have to wrap up sometime eventually, what are your final words of hope for couples who are listening, who are trying to conceive? I think the, the biggest message that I always want to leave people with is sometimes it's not if you'll be a parent, it's just how. And when you phrase it like that, well, how, all of your options open up. I mean, it's it's an expensive process, and, and I truly could not have afforded any treatment, so I never want to be um, flippant about that. Um, but if you're open to it, if you're able to afford it, if you're able to explore it, sometimes you know, it could just be IUI, it could be IVF, it could be donor sperm, donor eggs, adoption, surrogacy. There are options to you um, that sometimes it really is a matter of just how and not if, um, but always being mindful of what your personal limitations are. Um, but I, I, I just always like that, that the idea of kind of phrasing it differently as opposed to, you know, are we going to be parents? Are we going to be parents? Sometimes it really is, how are we going to be parents? And how are we going to find a way to get to that goal if it's if it's something that we want to keep pursuing? Absolutely. I love that. And it, it just, again, keeps the hope alive, right. no matter what you're going through, which is so, so important. Where can people find you if they want to follow you, they want to know more, they want to ask you questions? What's the best way to do that? I, I feel like Twitter, I'm on it more than anything. <laughs> and so, as you said, my, my uterus-related uh, handle is the two-week wait, the word the, the, the number two, and the words week wait. And then my blog is also the two-week wait blog spot.com. Um, and, yeah, I'm open to any questions, emails, tweets, anything. This is just something like you. After we went through our experiences – it forever changed me. It, it yeah. just, I, I think some people go through treatment and then they, they understandably don't ever want to think about it again. But for me, it just became a passion like you. Yeah, exactly. You want to turn around and give back because you know what the journey's like to get there and to even go through it. Absolutely. And I think the community yeah. was so supportive yeah. of, of me and you that I, I kind of do look at it as returning the favor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom, your advice, your thoughts and your humor. I know that our listeners have really benefited from everything that you've shared today. And I love chatting with you, too. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you do. Of course. Thank you so much. Gosh, that was oh, my gosh, that was amazing. One of my favorite things that she shared on this episode was not so much a specific tip that she shared, but just the power behind it. You know, the power of 
being involved and taking charge and how it's really, really okay and really necessary to ask your questions. And, you know, I obviously, I love her sense of humor. I really, really could actually listen to her every single day. But, you know, whatever that is for you to help you get through it, do it. You know, whatever that is. It doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. But whatever is going to help you, go ahead and do that. But make sure that no matter what you're going through, no matter what lies ahead, that you remember to ask your questions. You've got to ask them. You have to understand what's going on with your health because it's your body and you know it better than anyone else. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you can head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review so we can get more amazing guests like Jay and continue providing you with inspiration and tips and motivation to help you get through infertility in a high-risk pregnancy. And if you are going through a high-risk pregnancy and you're sick of waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're ready to get back in control so you can stay pregnant as long as possible and give your baby a strong start to life, I invite you to schedule a complimentary consultation. And you can do that by visiting my website at parijatdeshpande.com. And I'd love to stay in touch. So follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at parijatdesh. That's P-A-R-I-J-A-T-D-E-S-H. I know this feels like a lonely road and it feels like you're the only one that's going through it and sometimes it's so overwhelming, but there are people out there like me, like Jay, and thousands of others who are on this journey with you. Take it one day, one step at a time. You can do this. 